0: Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven to children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness." but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of God.
1: Almighty God, we come to you, and we lift up your holy name. Father, you are a good God, and you are moving and working in the midst of our hectic lives, our schedules, our to-do lists, our fears, our worries, our dreams, and our shattered hopes. Father, and as we come to you, we confess that we often don't understand what you're doing. And we look around us and we see the barren trees of the winter. We see the broken pieces, and it causes our hearts to be heavy and our minds ache and do not understand. But Father, we bring you the broken pieces of our lives that you may put them back together in the mosaic that you are making, which is beautiful, and it will. Uh, In due time, we will step back and see the broken, random pieces, and we will see how they have fit together most beautifully and most gloriously for your praise and our satisfaction in you. Father, we come to you. We confess that we need you. We need you to Forgive us of the pettiness. We need to forgive you. Forgive us of the forgetfulness. We need to be forgiven of our doubts. We need to be forgiven of the things that we have left undone and the things that we have done. Father, I thank you that you're a God who is sovereign and you know what you're doing and you're leading and guiding and moving in our lives. Father, give us eyes to see this morning in the text new uh, emphasis and a new level that we have not seen before by the power of your spirit working and moving that we may be satisfied in you alone and that the world may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that love for your glory, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. And maybe may be seated. If you're not already there, turn to Mark chapter 3. It's uh, in your pew Bibles on page 838. If you're not familiar um, necessarily, if you don't have a pew Bible and you're not real sure where that is, you can go in the front part of your book. Uh, There's a uh, table of contents. It's the Matthew Mark second book of the New Testament And i'll have the page number right next to it so you can flip there uh, and follow along i like to go through and be able to explain from the text what jesus is saying Uh, And it's always helpful to have a bible in front of you to go and make sure i'm I know what i'm talking about and make sure i'm sticking to the text, uh, which is our authority Um, As we as we look at this text this morning, I um I work at the seminary here in town, and I got an office, and in that office, I have this painting. And some of you might recognize this painting uh, as done by Rembrandt, and you might also say, uh, that's a Bible story, and that's the prodigal son. Now, I ordered that, and it's a good, yay big, and I put it up on the, the actual painting is in Moscow, I believe, I haven't been there to see it. It's roughly about nine feet tall. That's a massive piece of art. Rembrandt drew, uh, painted it a few years before his passing. It's is really his best known and greatest work of all his biblical uh, paintings. And if you see it at first, you can see right away, that's the father in the red um, drape. You see this, the prodigal son returning. Uh, he has no hair. Uh, he has a, a, a broken shoe. Uh, you can probably say the older son is to the right or yes to the right uh, in red you have servants in the background uh, there is somebody that's leaning up against the 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 pole that may be the mother uh, we don't know for sure but i've had it in my office for several years and i go by it and every once in a while when i'm stuck when i uh, need uh, inspiration i'll look at the picture And the longer I look at it, I begin to notice things in the text that I've never seen before. And then this is a, I bought it. I saw it at somebody else's office. I I, was actually Matt Russell, the pastor we're praying for. It was in his office. I was like, man, I'd like one of those for my office. And I I hung it there. And then everybody comes by and says, did you know that in this painting, this this and this and this, and they start pointing out to things to me that I've never seen before. If you look at the Father's hands, um, the left hand is very strong and very rugged, but his right hand is very soft, and it's probably not the best picture to be looking at it, but that's a better one back there. You can see a little bit. It's a little brighter. But you have a rugged, strong hand, and you have a gentle hand, and and Rembrandt painted that because of the power of God, but also his compassion, and his tenderness. Uh, Rembrandt was also the painter of light, so the only two people that are in the light are the father and the prodigal son, and you have the older son to the light who is just in the shadows coming into the light, and then you have the servants in the background, and the servant in the middle that you can see is almost looking at you saying, what do you think about this? Look at the son that has returned back to the grace and to the mercy of the Father. Now I bring this up to be able to say is that the longer we look at a piece of art, the longer we listen to music, a fine symphony orchestra, when we read a great novel, a great writing, we learn things. How many of you have read a book one time through and just it was amazing and captivating? And then you've gone back through and say, I never noticed that before. I never saw those nuances, those juxtapositions that the the author is doing, and you learn something new and something fresh about that. I believe and I pray that the book of Mark will be that way for us as we go through. It's very easy as we go through a book like this. Many of you have grown up in the church, and you know all about these stories, and you've heard these things before, and it becomes you go on autopilot. Oh, I know what that is. I know what this is. Oh, he's preaching about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I know what that is. You can check out and think, oh, the Jaguars are going to beat Kansas City today. Or what about that football game yesterday? Or what about lunch? What's for lunch? And you check in every once in a while. You throw in an amen. But you're really not digging into the text and savoring it for what it is. And I pray that as we come to the text, as we continue to go through Mark, we stop and we slow down and we deliberately walk through so we can learn about our Lord and about our Savior. Now, I think as we go through Mark... Jesus is presented as this powerful and extraordinary Savior to, the, to, to Mark's readers. And we go through, and probably one of the most shocking things about Mark's work is not who um, is following him, but who's not following him. We have crowds, and we can understand that the crowds are clamoring, but a majority of them really don't have genuine faith. They just want to get to Jesus for what they can get out of Jesus. A shocking thing is that Jesus, as we understand from Mark 1.1, the Son of God, the good news that proclaimed in him, The religious leaders themselves who know scripture and who love scripture and are trying to be as we say biblical they're not following jesus because he won't submit to their man-made rules and their regulations and in fact rather than following jesus they're trying to kill jesus they won't heal someone on the sabbath but they'll plot the death of a person on the sabbath because their hearts are festering rotten tombs but the people you wouldn't expect to be following Jesus are the sinners and the tax collectors, the people that are normally ostracized by society, but they are brought into fellowship with Jesus. And they're not brought into fellowship, Jesus, with a, um, a, a, just a, um, a rubber stamp of their lifestyles, but he brings them into fellowship with them and loves them enough to call them to repent of their sin and to believe the promises of God and follow Jesus, something that the religious leaders won't do because they don't think they have a problem. And so as we go through, we see Jesus in in unexpected ways. And this repetition that keeps happening is we have never seen anything like this before, and we have never experienced anyone like Jesus. Last week, we see this, that Mark is going through and he's revealing the spectacular power and awe-inspiring authority of Jesus, but he's also teaching us what it means to be a genuine disciple of Jesus. Last week, uh, we learned that you can't follow Jesus on your own terms. You have to follow Jesus on his terms. And this morning, I want you to see is this, that genuine disciples of Jesus obey the will of God, not stand in opposition to it. Genuine disciples of Jesus obey the will of God, not stand in opposition to it. Now, it's going to be, it's a hard text this week, a combination of Labor Day, hurricane, and craziness. um, And it's a tough text. And I told Gil this morning, it's not my three points and uh, application. It's a little wonky, but here, I'll get to my points. You'll be like, man, this guy's been going for 30 minutes and he hasn't even got to his points yet. Uh, But here, I'll get to them. And I won't be, well, we'll get you you home before the Methodists get to the restaurants. Uh, But two ways. We want to recognize God's work in Christ. Genuine, Genuine disciples recognize God's work in Christ and genuine disciples obey God's will in Christ. Genuine disciples recognize God's work in Christ and obey God's will in Christ. The longer we gaze at the Gospel of Mark, the more details we begin to see. The things that we tend to gloss over, they become, more perif- they become more significant. And the things that seem fairly static, and okay, I got that, they prove to be deep and dynamic. And one literary technique that I have been waiting to tell you guys about, I've been excited about this, um, is, is this, we have come upon it this morning and it is known as the marken sandwich it's not a pastrami on rye but it's a literary technique where mark takes two stories and he's teaching one lesson he takes two stories story a he takes and he splits in half and he takes the meat of story b and shoves it in the middle so when you look at a, a good Markin sandwich and this won't be the next time we see it story a is the bread Uh, verses 20 and 21 of our text this morning, and then 31 and 35. So Jesus starts with this, and it's very easy to gloss over, oh, he's going from one place to another, and then we want to get to the blasphemy. Give us the blasphemy, that's where we're going. But we want to see, we want to listen to what Mark is presenting, this beautiful mosaic that he's giving us. Uh, So the story A, story B, story A, uh, it will not be on the quiz at the end of service. But Mark uses this to teach us what a genuine follower of Jesus is about and that we would properly um, recognize the work of God of redemption, what God is doing in here. But to, before we understand what Jesus is doing, we have to see two gross misjudgments. And so this is what we're going to look at first. Before we get to the application points, we're gonna look at two gross misjudgments of God's work. And this is where our Mark and Sandwich comes in because Jesus is gonna tell us, and uh, Mark is gonna present as Jesus' teaching about family and then also that how he interacts with the scribe. He puts them together to be able to say and show us what a genuine disciple and follower of Jesus is gonna do. So the first thing we see is that two gross misjudgments about God's work is that Jesus is irrational. Notice in verse 20, it says, Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered around so that they could not even eat. And when Jesus' family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And as we continue to see in the text, the crowds are following Jesus, and the weight of ministry is starting to become heavy on Jesus and upon his disciples. And this burden is taking a physical toll on Jesus. Jesus. The overwhelming burden for caring for the sick, for delivering the press, for teaching of the kingdom of God over time, even though he is God in flesh, he is a human like us, and he needed his sleep, and, he, and it became a toll, toll on him. Now, as I'm reading through this text, some, every once in a while, I take uh, straw polls. I'll send a text to somebody. I'll ask my family And uh, um, when I first saw this text in my mind, because when you're reading through a narrative, it's sometimes really good to try to picture what's going on. And it got to a point where in the text, I think it's verse 20, that says, and Jesus was not even able to eat. Now, truth be told, Anna and I um, thought that Jesus physically could not get the food to his mouth because the crowd was so dense, or the buffet line was over there and the crowd was so dense, he couldn't get to it, so he couldn't eat. Now, another person in our family said, no. Jesus was too busy taking care of everybody else to have time to feed himself. He says, "Ask," and this person said, ask any mother in the congregation and they will know that. Uh, Because mothers are too busy taking care of keeping their children alive that often they go without eating. And uh, that person is completely right. Have you ever looked at somebody in your life and thoughts. Look at the job that he is doing. If that, that he doesn't quit soon, that job's going to kill him. Or you, I think she's crazy to keep helping those people. They're sucking the life out of her. And what happens is whether it be a job or a ministry or a person, we stand back and say they're out of their minds to keep doing that or helping them. That's going to run them into the ground and they're not going to be any good for anybody. They're crazy to keep doing that. Have you ever thought that? I have. And so what's happening now is that Mary, who loves her boy, and uh, Jesus' half-brothers who grew up with him are getting word back that Jesus is becoming a physical toil on him, and they decide if Jesus won't stop this ministry madness, we're going to have to do something to stop him. See, the family's problem was not their concern for him because they genuinely loved him. The problem is, when they looked at Jesus in his ministry, rather than seeing him through the eyes of faith, they saw him through their own carnal flesh, and they said, he's lost his mind. Look what he's doing. These crowds are sucking the life out of him. We've got to do something. Mary, aren't aren't you going to do something? They're, They're wearing your boy out. See, they looked at Jesus and said he was a fanatic who, if left unchecked, he would bring shame on the family or that his commitment to teaching and to ministry was too radical for their uh, their comfort. Pull back, and and religious devotion was okay for them, but Jesus' actions were being irrational. They had gone beyond that tipping point, and something had to be done. Notice in a few verses later, in verse 31, And his mother and his brother came, and standing outside, they sent and they called him. See, jesus his mothers and his brothers had come to as says to seize him literally it's a greek word that used when um when uh, armies will seize someone and later this greek word will be used of when the romans seized jesus and brought him into custody Mary and the boys had come to be able to stop Jesus from doing what he's doing because at this point they don't see Jesus with the eyes of faith and they say Jesus is too radical and his devotion to his ministry is too fanatical and it's not Uh, They didn't see him as the fulfillment of the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior-Redeemer who would come. They just saw him as somebody who had gone too far and was being uh, um, irrational. The second gross misjudgment that uh, came across to Jesus... Chris, could you bring that up for me? If you click on it, I don't know why it's not coming up. But the second gross misjudgment that you have is in verse 22, where the, the scribes look at Jesus and say, Jesus is not just irrational, but Jesus is deno- uh, demonic. Notice verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Azazel, and by the prince of demons he caps out, casts out demons. Up to this point, the scribes have watched Jesus. They've watched him cast out demons. They've watched him heal the sick. They've watched him cleanse leopards. They have been in his presence when he says to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk. And then they have been there and they watch Jesus heal the crippled man. At this point, they can't say he's not doing miracles and he doesn't have power, what they can do at this point, they can only say that power is not from God, it's not the work of God, that power is the work of Satan. And rather than saying Jesus is the son of God, they said Jesus is the son of the devil. Jesus is the son of the devil. Kent Hughes says this, they could not deny the power of jesus they would not accept it as being from god and therefore christ had to be of satan this made jesus supremely evil an arch fiend a horrible corrupt tool of satan and they had to stop him because they wanted to be biblical But they, not as genuine disciples of the Lord, were trying to put a stop to what God was doing in Christ. See, Ocean Park, often we um, as Southern evangelicals living on the Bible Belt, we'll know, oh, Jesus did lots of miracles and Jesus was powerful. And we believe what the Bible says is true, what Jesus does. That does not equal faith you can witness the most spectacular acts of god the pharisees and the scribes and the crowds did and they can be completely unable to distinguish between the work of god and the work of satan without the eyes of faith a rebellious heart will declare the work of god in christ demonic this is serious stuff that they're doing how did Jesus respond when these two gross misjudgments of who God was concerning his identity? Jesus responded with two parables. And ultimately, Jesus said, I am God's champion. Check it out. Verse um, 23 and 26, the first parable. How, he asked, can Satan cast out Satan?" If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan rises up against himself as it is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. In June 16th of 1858, Abraham Lincoln, then Senate candidate, delivered one of his greatest speeches that you probably all know. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government, Lincoln said, cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect that house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one or all of the other. Lincoln's words were prophetic because in less than three years later, the shots at Fort Sumter in South Carolina brought in the, probably the bloodiest, deadliest time as an Americans as nearly 600,000 people died from direct combat and also from the diseases that festered from the, from the wounded. But Lincoln's words are memorable, are memorable not simply because what he said is because they are rooted in the truth of God that no kingdom or house could remain if it is torn by a civil war you see jesus is saying that if satan uh, if jesus is jesus is diametrically opposed to satan how could jesus himself be empowered by satan If what the scribes were saying was true, and Jesus is saying, this is ridiculous, Satan is undermining his own kingdom and is accelerating his ultimate demise. In the world, Jesus is saying that the forces of Satan are strong and they possess a single-minded fervor and devotion to destroying the kingdom of God. Satan is by no way divided in his loyalty, and no may, way possible is in empowering the destruction of his own kingdom. You see, Jesus shows that the judgment of the scribes and the pronouncement therein is utterly ridiculous. But again, he continues that this parable number two in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Steve, you can just close that and let it go go black. Satan in this parable is the strong man and his house is the kingdom of darkness and is that Jesus as the champion has come in and plundered the world is under the iron grip of satan and there's something that has to be done And the promises of God from Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve received the curse of God but said there would be one that would come from the woman that would crush the head of Satan. That promise is being fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the promised Savior who would come and crush the head of Satan. Crush the head of Satan who is enslaving the inhabitants of this world by sin and demon possession and disease and death and every form of unspeakable evil that weighs heavy on our hearts and our lips, don't even want to utter the wretchedness of the domain of darkness. Luther In his great hymn, we sang it a few weeks ago on Sunday night, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, describes the heinous power of Satan, the strong man who holds the world in his uh, clenches. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. See, Jesus is saying that the will of the strong man here on earth is corrupt. His grip is relentless. His every intent is evil. No one on earth is able to overpower him. We, as people, need a champion to to enter the strong man's house and bind him. Luther continues, Did we, in our own strength, confide our striving would-be losing we're not the right man on our side the man's on of god's own choosing Dust ask who that may be christ jesus it is he the lord of hosts his name from age to age the same and he must win the battle Is it no reason that song has been heartily sung for the last 500 years because Christ is our champion who has come to deliver us from the bondage of the strong man? Jesus is the champion who has been sent by God to bind and plunder the kingdom of darkness. Jesus has come to look Satan in the eye and defeat him head on jesus is the promised redeemer that was foreseen by isaiah steve read it was this morning isaiah 49 verses 24 through 26 can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the tyrant rescued in other words can the people of god be rescued from the clutches of the domain of darkness and the captivity of the strong man and jesus through isaiah says yes even the captives of the mighty one shall be taken, and the birds of, of prey of time shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their flesh. This is talking about the, the battle. And they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior, your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the mighty one of Jacob, who has come to bind the straw man and bring us deliverance from his captivity. He is the one that John the Baptist said, who was greater than I, that it was the come that was to come. Jesus is the victorious one who bound Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus is the powerful one whose very words rebuke the demons and sends them shrieking into the abyss. What is happening is not the results of a civil war within Satan's ranks, but the work of God orchestrating a direct onslaught into the heart of the enemy led by our conquering captain, Jesus Christ, who will not be defeated. Amen? Come on, all right, there we go. The kingdom of the darkness trembles for fear of Jesus Christ, the mighty one who is sent by God to bind that straw man. And he has begun to plunder his house, to liberate his captives and to set them free. See, as Jesus teaches, those uh, around them are captivated. Um, by his teaching and the simplicity of his parables that are coming and happening within their midst, and they are aghast that they had believed the fallacies of the scribes that prove blasphemous. Ocean Park, why did Jesus go to such great lengths to debunk these two misjudgments about his identity? Why didn't he just shake it off, as um, a resident theologian says on her pop song, If you don't know who the real Jesus is, you cannot be a genuine disciple of Christ. Wrong thinking produces wrong living. You cannot do the will of God, your master, your Lord, if you don't know what God is doing. See, and this is where we get to our application points. Genuine uh, disciples of Jesus recognize God's work in salvation. God, or Ocean Park. By nature, we have blasphemous hearts. Let's take a look in verse twenty-eight and thirty. Truly, I say to you, all sin will be sins will be forgiven the children of man. And notice what they says. Whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The default state of the heart, because of the fall, we have been born into sin, our Head Adam fell in the garden and came into sin and we were born into sin with that guilt and we gladly, as it says in Romans, followed along in the guilt of our our father Abraham. Blasphemy is the slandering or the defaming of the work of God. Like Adam in the garden who decided rather than trusting the promises of God and the character of God that was good, he would trust the lies of the serpent. And his own judgment, Adam uh, was, was declaring and blaspheming the promises of God. And he believed the lie of the serpent. All sin is blasphemy because sin is saying, God is not good, and it's slandering the character and the nature of God. God is not good, and so I can't trust Him to do what He says. I am not blessed for standing out of the way of sinners or not st- sitting in the seat of, sc- uh, of, of scoffers, nor in the way of sinners. I'm not blessed. I have to do those things because I can't trust God. I have to follow that and make my own way and, 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 and work and scheme. But here's the promise and the power of the gospel to people with blasphemous hearts. The good news of Jesus has come to bring forgiveness to sinful, blasphemous words and deeds. And this is where we can can see this beautiful dynamic of verse 28 as we stare into the, the mosaic of Mark's gospel in verse 28 all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. I have people have said to me when I've shared the gospel with them, I have done too much. I have gone too far. And the promises of the gospel is that as we sing, the vilest offender who truly believes his wonder, his transport, his pardon, receive. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, perversions, and the things like these, the deeds of the flesh that hold us captive because our heart is rotten, because our society is corrupt, and because we're held in the stronghold of Satan, Jesus has come to bring forgiveness and to lead us out of the captivity of the kingdom of darkness into glorious light and to the presence of God who is holy and purifies an impure people. The gospel declares that Jesus has come to bring forgiveness to those who went once devotedly pledged allegiance to the kingdom of Satan, the strong man of this world. But Jesus continues and says, if somebody opposes the Holy Spirit, both verbally and continually with willful malicious intent, it reveals a hardness of heart that is beyond the possibility of repentance. There is no forgiveness, this commentator, commentator wrote, for those who are guilty of this eternal sin, of this hardness of heart, if this refusal to repent, if this, this um, obstinance that I am the captain of my soul, I am the master of my faith. As Sinatra says, I will not bend the knee, I did it my way. And they look at the work of, of God and say that is utter foolishness and rubbish and trash and all kinds of illicit things that I cannot repeat from the pulpits. See in the context of this mark and sandwich that uh, that he is feeding us for the glory of Christ and the contentment of our soul. He looks at the family of Jesus that says Jesus is irrational. They're looking at the work of God and saying, this is, this is silly. And it's telling us to avert Jesus from his mission is to do the will of Satan. To dismiss Jesus as, that is way too out there. I'm comfortable with a quiet, private religion Uh, That stays to the side and doesn't uh, doesn't manifest itself in the in the public sector. I'm comfortable with that, but when it starts to change my hearts and thoughts and makes me love my enemy and pray for those who persecute me, that's a little too far. That's a little crazy. The foolishness of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And to the scribes, this is particularly to the religious people, and that we have to guard against this, is to say that the work of God is demonic. To teach that Jesus was from Satan is to defame the work of God. To stand opposed to the work of Jesus is is to stand opposed to God himself. It doesn't matter if you're the scribes. It doesn't matter if you're Jesus' disciples, as we saw last week, and then we'll see in Mark 8, with Jesus rebuking Satan, saying or uh, Peter saying, get thee behind me, Satan. And it didn't matter if it was his mother himself. Blasphemy against the work of God through the Holy Spirit in Christ is unimpartable because a heart will never receive the grace of God. It's a sin that never finds forgiveness because it looks at the only source of forgiveness, the work of God in Christ, with disdain and with apathy. To some people, Jesus is irrational and fanatical, and they reject him as a fanatic and a fool. To others, Jesus is a heretic, and he's profane, and he won't follow their rules, so clearly he's from Satan, and they reject him as demonic and deceived. If you harden your heart and remain steadfast in your opposition to Jesus, whether you think he is irrational or whether you think he is demonic, you will die in your sin as a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, as an enemy of God. May this never Mark is revealing us as we go through page by page of the book of Mark, the long awaited conqueror of Satan, that light that those who have been stumbling in great darkness have finally see the light that promised one the descendant of eve the the branch of Des- jesse the offspring of abraham the promises that in the old testament are rich and true that the savior is coming jesus is that savior and to harden your heart against him and say that he is irrational or demonic or deceived it's to commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that will never be forgiven because it will never come to the waters of the mercy and grace of God. See, Timothy, uh, Paul himself, who wrote much of the Old Testament, wrote in 1 Timothy 1, 12, and 14, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, though formerly I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our God overflowed with the faith and love that is in Jesus Christ. Do not allow your misjudgments of God concerning Jesus to harden your heart and make Christ offensive to you misjudging the nature of Christ is dangerous state to remain in you need to recognize the power of god working in salvation through christ to redeem you from the kingdom of satan and to deliver you from the stronghold and the straw of the strong man and as jesus says in mark 115 repent of your sin repenting is is to see your sin and not just simply feel sorry for your sin, but see the greatness of Jesus that repenting makes you change allegiances. I am no longer a le- pledge allegiance to the kingdom of this world and to treasuring my habitual sin, but I renounce that and I turn away from that. But I don't just say no to my sin. I say yes to the promises of Christ. Jesus is is the fulfillment, I no longer live for this, I live for Jesus. I take off the sin and filth of my former allegiance and my former citizenship, and I put on Christ every day. There's a time, an hour we first believe in Christ and repent of our sin and follow Jesus the first time. And every day we repent and believe. We repent and believe because Jesus is glorious. He's wonderful. He's beautiful. He's uh, a a, a, a pearl of great price. He is a treasure in a field that we have sold everything we have that we might possess Him. Jesus tells us to repent of our blasphemous hearts and believe the promises of Jesus, that he has come, he has delivered us from our sin, he has forgiven us, and he is cleansing us and making us like Jesus. Amen? Recognize the work of God in Christ, and genuine disciples do the will of God in Christ. And I know we're running out of time, and I planned it this way. Uh, We witnessed last week the calling of the 12 disciples and really the commissioning that their first thing when Jesus called them was not to go do something. Their first thing was to go and to be with Jesus. To sit at his feet to listen to him, to pray with him, to talk with him, to laugh with him, to have that fellowship with Jesus. That was the first, the core thing, to be eyewitnesses to the miracle of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus if you're not willing to be with Jesus. So you don't come in and punch your top i'm saved i've done that i said the prayer i walked the aisle i did whatever you wanted to do i'm done being a disciple is repenting of your sin and trusting christ and then being with jesus let's see this focus of this mark and sandwich returns to the story of jesus's natural family and jesus's uh genuine family his, but it's interesting because as you read the text, the natural family are actually seen as outsiders. Notice where they are. There, I think it's 31 where they come, and they're calling for Jesus. They're calling for Jesus to leave his ministry and come with them that he, they can seize him and bring him home. They are outsiders who do not have faith, and they're looking in on Jesus. And the, who is the genuine family? The genuine family are who? Those that are sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus looks at them and said, These are my brothers and my sisters. This is my family. The misjudgments of Jesus' mother and his brothers, and we will see Jesus' mother, uh, is very faithful. To the very end, she's one of the few people with this core of faithful women who even when all the disciples ran like sheep without a shepherd, it was Jesus' mother and these faithful band of women who stayed faithful to Jesus in the end. But he says, even the misjudgments of his mother and his brothers kept them from being with Jesus at this point. They were depriving themselves of the life-giving grace they desperately needed. May ask you this, Ocean Park, what are you doing to be with Jesus? Because you cannot be a genuine disciple of Jesus unless you're being with Jesus. How much time this week did you spend reading the scriptures? Sitting at his feet with your Bible open, reading the scriptures that you may hear the voice of Jesus, that you may see the heart of Jesus, that you may... Feel the anger of Jesus for what is important and feel the mercy and compassion of Jesus. How are you spending your time with Jesus? You might say, well, I don't have a lot of time. Look back on your screen time app on your phone. How much were you on Twitter and Facebook and Netflix? How much did you spend like this and not enough at the feet of Jesus? How much time did you spend in prayer Is the time that you have with Jesus communicating your heart and your struggles and your shortcomings and your fear and sitting in silence, listening for the voice of Jesus. Just as you can't go and not speaking to your spouse and developing a healthy relationship, you need to speak with Jesus. What about your time in corporate worship? Good thing y'all are here today. It doesn't apply to you. But next week. How much time are you spending in the corporate worship and corporate prayer where you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with your brothers and sisters to receive the bread of God's holy word and the refreshment of, his holy, of the Holy Spirit that is overflowing in the joys of your neighbor when you are parched and dry? Don't get so distracted by the tyranny of the urgent that you neglect the life-giving, joy-infusing, hope-stirring time at Jesus' feet. And then in verse 35, whoever does the will of God, Whoever recognized what God is doing in Christ and says, because of who Jesus is, therefore I will align my life in heart and mind and body, in thought, word, and deed to Jesus, I will be fanatic. I will be foolish to the world because Christ is of infinite value because he has rescued me from the domain of Satan. The heart that loves Jesus is the mighty one of God, loves to live for him and honor him. As we end our text this morning, there are two groups of people. There are those who are on the inside, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening for all that he has to tell them. And there are those on the outside who stand hard and fast in their false assumptions, and they look to stop Jesus. Where do you stand? Are you on the outside, clinging to your misconceptions, or are you on the inside? sitting at the feet of Jesus. Because genuine disciples of Jesus obey the will of God, not stand in opposition to it.